Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. David, Vitalik on the podcast. Got to listen to every Vitalik episode, sometimes two or three times. Hmm. This was a fantastic one. What did we cover? Yeah, we covered a bunch of different subjects. Every time for our quarterly check-in with Vitalik, he put up two articles that we wanted to go through. One was Vitalik talking about how we could you know, graduate or evolve from coin voting or token voting in DeFi and also just token voting in general. Um, kind of the issues that token voting presents and how we can circumvent around them with new governance mechanisms for DeFi apps. And as Ethereum becomes more and more valuable, as these DeFi apps become more and more valuable, the conversation as to how to govern these things in ways that aren't just centralizing control into token holders uh, is going to become even more important. Then we also turn to the conversation, which has resurfaced lately, regarding the infrastructure required to run a node for a blockchain, all of the different bottlenecks and requirements that you need in order to run a node and how these different choices that are made about hardware requirements impact how scalable a blockchain is, both in terms of its actual throughput, but also in terms of its decentralization. Decentralization is also a scale that you can optimize for different ends of the spectrum. So we revisit that conversation as well. And then we finish off with some really fun stuff. We ask Vitalik about the metaverse and whether or not Ethereum with this whole loot phenomenon has gone full circle. Vitalik always made the joke that he made Ethereum because he wanted to not ever get nerfed by his like special uh, spell or, or item. Level 60 warlock or something. <laughs> exactly, right. And so now that we have the metaverse, we have this gaming structure that you can't actually get your assets or your spells rug pulled from you. Uh, so that conversation happens towards the end. And then, of course, we just check in with Ethereum about where he considers Ethereum to be in its current state in history, both at the protocol level, but also in the mass adoption society level. So a bunch of different things here in this episode with Vitalik. Yeah, really relevant things too. Like, you know, number one is relevant because everything is a coin vote, right? And we talk about decentralized governance, but are we actually moving towards decentralized governance? You know, the second thing's relevant because we have all of these high performance blockchains. David, you and I just did a panel kind of a debate-ish, but not really. It was a panel mm -hmm. about Solana and comparing and contrasting a high-performance blockchain like Solana to Ethereum. And it really centered around this question of how important is it for a user to have the ability to run a node? It turns out Vitalik and the Ethereum set of values think that it's very important for users to run a node, have the ability to opt out so that the elites don't control the system, right? This is the trade-off you're often making with a high-performance, high-transactional throughput blockchain and doesn't get a lot of press because it's easier during a bull market when price is rising and um, you know people want unlimited block space to just make these kinds of trade-offs. So we discussed that. And then, of course, the metaverse is always a really interesting conversation, the state of Ethereum. So guys, we think you are going to enjoy this episode with Vitalik. Uh, before we get into the details, before we get into the conversation, we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible. Living a bankless life requires taking control of your own private keys, not your keys, not your crypto. That's why so many in the bankless nation already have their Ledger hardware wallets, which makes proper private key management a breeze. But the Ledger ecosystem is more than just a secure hardware wallet. Ledger is the combination of the Ledger hardware wallet and the Ledger Live app. And if you're used to seeing all of your crypto services and favorite dApps all in one place, Ledger is where you want to be. Not only does Ledger let you buy crypto assets straight from the app, but it also hooks into decentralized exchange aggregators like Paraswap, which makes sure that you are getting the best prices on your trades without your assets ever leaving your control. 
DeFi never stops growing and the Ledger Live app grows alongside with it. So click the link in the show notes to see all the DeFi apps that Ledger Live has and stay tuned as more and more apps come online. And if you don't have a Ledger hardware wallet, what are you even waiting for? Go to ledger.com, grab your Ledger, download Ledger Live and get all of your DApps all in one place. Arbitrum is an Ethereum scaling solution that is going to completely change how we use DeFi. If you've been using Ethereum for the past 12 months, you've probably noticed the high gas fees and the slow confirmation times that have been plaguing DeFi. Too many people want to use Ethereum and it doesn't have enough capacity for all of us. That's where Arbitrum comes in. Arbitrum is a layer two to Ethereum, which means Arbitrum can increase Ethereum's throughput by orders of magnitude at a fraction of the cost of what we are used to paying. When interacting with Arbitrum, you can get the performance of a centralized exchange while tapping into Ethereum's level of security and decentralization. This is why people are calling this Ethereum's broadband moment, where we get to add performance onto decentralization and security. If you're a developer and you want to save on gas costs and make an overall better experience for your users, go to developer.offchainlabs.com to get started building on Arbitrum. If you're a user, keep an eye out for your favorite DeFi apps building on Arbitrum. Arbitrum has been working with over 300 teams, including Ethereum's top infrastructure projects, and will be opening up to all users shortly. There are so many apps coming online to Arbitrum, so you may want to pack your bags in preparation for the great migration to the Arbitrum Layer 2. To keep up to speed with Arbitrum, follow them on Twitter at Arbitrum and join their Discord. Bankless Nation, we are super excited to have Vitalik Buterin back on the podcast. He is the Ethereum co-founder, researcher, guy who will never give you free ETH on Twitter. I can guarantee you that. Vitalik, welcome back to Bankless. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Uh, it's awesome to have you again. I feel like this is an opportunity to have sort of a conversation with you and uh, just pick your brain, almost like an ongoing conversation. Um, the last time we chatted, we talked about the topic of legitimacy, and that was now three months ago. That was in May. So three months is a long time in crypto. It's probably like three years in the regular world. We've hit new milestones. There have been new issues, new insights. You've written a slew of blog posts. We want to cover those as much as possible. Um, this time, I think we want to lead with a topic that is top of mind in the crypto community. And I think it's you know part of your mind share as well, uh, because you wrote about it. And this is the topic of governance. So um, read your article about moving beyond coin voting. And if I could maybe you know summarize and give the headline here, it feels like after reading that, you kind of think coin voting sucks, that the community shouldn't settle on it as the only solution, but that instead we should explore better decentralized governance protocols. So we want to start there and pick your brain on that subject. I guess my first question is this. When we talk about decentralized governance, do you think that's even possible? Or is this somewhat of an aspirational goal that we'll never quite achieve? Um, I mean, I think um, you can definitely have governance that's uh, much more decentralized than um, you know the average thing that people call a centralized org. Um, obviously, the question of like, how much decentralization can you achieve is um, a complicated and fascinating one. And I mean, there's uh, the the question of um, like what kind of benefits that you, um, you can get from that decentralization. Um, I think, but and I do think that it, like it is a worthwhile experiment. Um, I think. Uh, in particular, because uh, like blockchain-based and uh, decentralized platforms, like they uh, derive their entire value and legitimacy from uh, creative, uh, credible neutrality, as uh, we've talked about before, right? And 
it's very difficult for a platform to claim to be credibly neutral if um, there is a yeah, very small team that's uh, controlling every, uh, everything and all of the decision-making behind it. Um, so uh, coming up with uh, forms of uh, governance that uh, do not depend on a, a, small, uh, a small team making all of the decisions is uh, it's definitely something that's uh, very important for a bunch of reasons. Um, but, you know, and at, the, at the same time, like have a uh, coin holders voting is definitely far from the only way to do it. So when we talk about governance baked into that conversation implies that there's some sort of objective or direction that mm. governance actually points towards. Mm. And in your article, we juxtapose to the difference between or at least imply the difference between public goods and private goods, right? And when we have these DeFi apps, this financial infrastructure and also Ethereum at large, I think there is a question outstanding as to who governance is actually governing over these systems for. Hmm. And so like one possible interpretation is that the governors of the MakerDAO system are governing in order to prioritize and uphold the value of the MKR token above all other things. Or an alternative interpretation might be that MKR is a token that is used to direct the MakerDAO application to become the best financial services product on Ethereum for the betterment of the users. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when you think of governance, how would you answer who is governance for when we talk about all of these things that we are governing over? Yeah, I mean, I think that distinction between like, is it for the benefit of the yeah, holders or the benefit of the users is really important, right? Because like, especially in the case of these platforms that contain a lot of uh, like what I call internal capital, right? In this case, it's like the ETH that's locked up in the uh, MakerDAO contracts. Like, potentially, you could imagine a world where, for well, like, let's say, for example, that, like, Rye does uh, really well, and uh, it ends up taking over, and there, there ends up being this public consensus that Rye is better than Dai, and Dai is kind of on the way out. Um, but at the same time, there's, like, a couple of legacy organizations that still hold a whole bunch of Dai, but, like, you just know that over the next few years, they're going to stop using Dai, and, the, and uh, they're the platform's going to kind of slowly whittle away to having nothing, right? Like in that situation, if you were an MKI, MKR holder, it's at like, if you feel like you don't have the long-term prospects anymore, it's absolutely in your long-term interest to just make a vote that just says, okay, guys, we're just going to snap up all the ETH that's locked up in, in the collateral for ourselves, distribute it among the MKR holders, and like screw the die holders because, well, we don't really have our long-term reputation anymore, right? And like to me, that's in sounds like an outcome that's pretty fair to describe as being like bad, right? Um, so there, like I think uh, in a lot of cases there is uh, alignment between the uh, uh, token holders and uh, the users, but also in a lot of cases there really isn't, right? In uh, a lot of cases, like for example. Sometimes, um, you know, the the uh, thing that the that the platform is trying to provide and just uh, ends up requiring trust, and so you want governance that can actually like satisfy the user's trust, even if it's not in token holders' interests. Um, sometimes the participants in the community or even the creators of the project, like they have particular values that they care about that go beyond the interests of token holders. So like, for example, I might care about economic equality and I might want to um, build if like if I create a new token, build in a gadget that distributes, say, 
one unit of that token to every human per year, like just because like I want the supply to be more egalitarian. Now the existing uh, token holders might not want that, and so and uh, they might want you know if they control the government governance, they might end up like shutting it off or like basically a kind of stopping you know reg registration of new humans completely. Um, so. That's another example of where, like, there is some other goal that it seems reasonable to try to, um, like, have a governance mechanism to achieve, but that goal does not end up being well aligned with the the interest of any particular token holder. Another thing I think is also that, like, uh, token holders they often end up um, holding tokens of a lot of different projects, right? Like. Uh, it often ends up being the case that like if you just uh, try to use your token holders as a representative of your community um then those uh, like the set of token holders that you get ends up being the same right like uh, you know there's these big investment funds and they have a big chunk of uh, you know the uniswap they have a big chunk of uh, a whole bunch of these other projects and basically yeah like you end up losing the ability to have kind of uniqueness and to have different uh, communities that actually have like different values and uh, uh, are making kind of earnestly different attempts at pursuing whatever their goals are. Um, so like, there's also just this kind of like this sort of risk of just, you know, homogenization in terms of like strategy um, for if uh, token holders end up controlling things. Right. So I feel like those are some examples of uh, reasons why, um, governance that uh, ex like explicitly tries to do something other than satisfying the desires of token holders for their token to make more money is uh, something that's important. Um, and it's uh, something um, like basically the reasons why it's uh, important to empower other like, other kinds of constituencies or at least create structures where even if token holders are part of their structures, token holders have some kind of like incentive to like actually participate in the, in the system in a way that serves those goals. So Vitalik, when you were writing your article, uh, are presenting an argument about why token vote sucks and we need better and, and better and stronger and more aligned mechanisms, who are you trying to that hmm. first off i think i can claim that there is a values judgment baked into even writing the article in the first place implying that you know you actually think that governance should be different and more inclusive uh and so when you were writing this article who were you trying to get more included into governance or what was the goal of even bringing up this conversation i mean like i think it's uh well, first of all it's a conversation like that definitely did not start with that post right like yeah like, mm -hmm. i have been writing these posts on like you know uh, the one on collusion and on coordination problems, uh, the post back in 2017 and 2018 on uh, governance where I, yeah, I was criticizing what was going on in, in uh, the EOS ecosystem with all of the bribing that was happening. Right. Um, so it's definitely something that like, I have been trying to express for a long time. And I guess I, I, I definitely felt the need to express it just much more cleanly and plainly in one of these uh, you know blog posts where just the the whole point of the post is the title um but uh, the um, the the reason why i felt that way is just because uh, you know we have been seeing over the last year and a half this big emergence of these new uh, defi uh, protocols and and DAOs of all kinds right mm -hmm. um, and we've been in a 
seeing people do all these different experiments. Uh, some of these projects that are launching from zero, so you know they they just start off being DAOs right from the beginning. Uh, and the thing that I've been seeing right is that people feel the need to add decentralized governance, and I think there's good reasons why they feel that need. Um, but at the same time, like they're just aren't any ideas available for how to implement that decentralized governance beyond like just to uh, token voting. Um, and you know, someone needed to sort of just express that alternative and even just express the idea that there is an alternative to token voting and that alternatives to token voting are not like automatically centralized or whatever. In the absence of these alternatives, you think people just, you know, settle on token vote as almost like a shelling point just because everyone else is doing without mm -hmm. doing it without even thinking about it? Yeah, totally. I mean, it's like that's a, a natural effect that happens everywhere, right? Like, uh, this is the whole, um, you know, if you do the same thing as everyone else um, and you fail, then like, yeah, it's not your fault. <laughs> um, it, but if you do a, a, if you try something uh, different uh, from everyone else and you fail, um, then like everyone yells at you and you get fired, right? Um, like this is the sort, like that's the sort of thing that. Uh, ends up causing a lot of problems in a lot of contexts. I mean, even like, you know, we have uh, we have 206 uh, different countries, but we have very far from 206 different uh, approaches to policy and a whole bunch of important questions. Um, some of them, uh, some of which really could use a lot, um, a lot more diversity and options. Um, so the, um, I guess uh, I, I definitely am worried um, that if alternatives to coin voting don't kind of get expressed and at least intellectually expanded on, then like things will settle on coin voting by default. And then we'll be having this conversation in five years anyway, but mm. we'll be having it like just because, um, you know, the, the coin voting uh, DAOs will have all been captured in some, uh, in, uh, uh, some way or other. And it will be much harder to steer away at that point. They used to say in enterprise sales circles, like nobody ever got fired for, for buying IBM. Yes. Right. It's like <laughs> so hard to get your product in there because if you buy IBM, it's just that's what everyone's doing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We definitely want to get more into the nitty gritty details of this conversation. Uh, but I want to finish off this introduction part with this question. I was recently in a debate with a Bitcoin maximalist, self-identified Bitcoin maximalist. Uh, and one of his big critiques about Ethereum and proof of stake is that the proof of stake actually instantiates the value of the Ether token a little bit more strongly than it does in proof of work. And so the Bitcoin, a Bitcoin or critique on Ethereum is that Ethereum is not a public resource. It's a private economy with private products that are meant to enrich Ether holders. Uh, what say you about this? I mean, isn't that true with uh, Bitcoin as well? Um, right. Uh, I mean, Bitcoin is even more strongly enshrined into the Bitcoin blockchain than Ether is enshrined into the Ethereum blockchain. Because, like, for, in the Ethereum blockchain, well, okay, fine, you have to pay EIP fifteen fifty nine fees and ETH, but in the Bitcoin blockchain, like, Bitcoin is literally the only thing that you can transact. Um, and, hmm. and yeah, it's. Uh, like the Bitcoin blockchain almost explicitly exists to support the the Bitcoin currency and therefore like to support the economic interests of existing holders of the Bitcoin currency. Does that preclude these two things from being a public good then? So um, I think in general, um, publicness is always a spectrum and not a binary, right? Like I think there's almost like there's very few things in the world that are truly public, right? Like there's uh, 
And even like uh, national governments, right? Like, you know, national governments love talking about themselves as as like, you know, we're, quote, public, you know, the public sector. And and unlike these private uh, uh, entities that merely represent their own interests, you know, we represent, quote, all of society. But like, you know, the reality is we live in an interconnected world. And like, you know, does the U.S. government actively represent the interests of, say, society in Afghanistan? Right. So... Like every, like pretty much anything that uh, exists in the world as it is, like it's uh, somewhere on the spectrum between, um, you know, being something that exists just for one person and uh, being something that exists for the entire world. Some things come close to existing for the entire world, but some things are further, some things are even further. Um, I think uh, in the case of uh, cryptocurrencies, like, it's definitely true that their supply is uh, kind of uh, supply distribution is kind of unbalanced, um, and I think uh, like that is a legitimate problem. Like it would be nice if uh, the uh, sub- if the supply of cryptocurrencies was more widely distributed. Though at the same time, the uh, I think Ethereum uh, did do a better job than uh, most other cryptocurrencies, right? I, again, I don't know if you read my recent uh, article on the like the the Gini index and inequality. Um, one of the charts that I had in there was just like the percent pre-mined and uh, like the percent allocated to like existing kind of like closed off pre-investors and all these different uh, blockchains and like ETH and Cosmos, I think it was that that were the only ones that really looked decent and the rest of them were like pretty much completely downright dystopian. Um, so that was... Uh, uh, so it's an issue, um, but uh, right, it was, yeah, there it is, ETH and, oh, right, no, it wasn't, Co- uh, yeah, Cosmos is up there. Oh, Tes- Tesos does a good job. That's nice. Um, I guess uh, Cardano as well. Um, EOS, I don't know. I mean, in the uh, in the EOS case, I guess, like, wh- wasn't there a lot of just like accusations of all kinds of wash trading in the sale? So I'm not sure how genuine the 10% figure is, um, but like... You can just look at the chart, right? And you can see, you know, like which of these uh, blockchains, like, are like which of these blockchains are the ones that, like, if Ethereum disappeared tomorrow, like, you would personally feel like at all comfortable migrating to, right? <laughs> um, the um, I guess so. As far as coin holdings go, that's a legitimate issue. But then, as far like the other thing is that blockchains aren't just about empowering people who hold the coins, right? They're about empowering users and they're about providing value to people by using those blockchains. And the ability to use Ethereum definitely is something that is like I think truly global. Um, like and you do have people in all sorts of places that are like just benefiting from the ability to build things on Ethereum and actually uh, have those applications uh, interact with each other and have people use those applications. Um, So it is, I guess, Ethereum is not a perfect system, but also like pretty much anything else that calls itself public is very far from a perfect system either. So, you know, you like you can't have perfection, but we can um, try to kind of keep getting better and better than what we had before. Okay, so we can't have perfection, but we can try to keep getting better and better mm-hmm. than before. But I, I guess that um, begs the question almost, why is decentralized governance better in the first place? Mm-hmm. Now, some, some people would say, hey, I, why, why go to the, all this trouble? I mean, we have shareholder vote in, in corporations. Mm-hmm. Uh, centralized governments uh, do fairly well. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you mentioned in the, you know, the top part of your article that uh, some of these cypherpunk values mm-hmm. are kind of embedded in the blockchain movement to minimize coercion, uh, maximize coordination with uh, you know, minimal coercion, private property and markets. But like, why 
from a values perspective, do you think decentralized governance is important? You mentioned credible neutrality, right? Mm-hmm. But it, so is this like a legitimacy and social scalability argument? When you have decentralized governance, then you can get more people on board and it benefits more users? Or mm-hmm. what's kind of the argument for all of this? So that's one good argument. Um, another good argument, I think, is that users want systems where the governance of, of those systems is just clearly not something that can easily screw them over, right? Like if you look at like Twitter and Facebook and all the centralized Web2 uh, companies, like this happens all the time, right? You have this ecosystem of startups that build themselves around Facebook APIs or Twitter APIs and doing interesting things with those APIs until eventually, well, you know, once they get big, get big enough, like Facebook rug pulls them and says like, you know, hey, guys, you know, either we buy your company that you spent years developing for $500,000 or, you know, tomorrow we're going to shut off your API and build our own competitor. Um, And that's, uh, Ethereum is not going to do that to you, right? Um, You know, Bitcoin is also not going to do that to you. Um, so that's like, like the facts that Ethereum governance just has so many stakeholders and the facts that users have to actually like choose to download and accept, um, any of these, uh, software package patches. Um, and, uh, you know, all of these things that together basically means that like, there isn't this uh, kind of ability to just, um, you know, immediately go and flip the switch on someone, um, which is, uh. I think something important, um, and it's uh, something that can easily make um, people feel much more comfortable building applications on uh, Ethereum than they would uh, feel building on like some one of these uh, platforms that's just run by a single company. That's a good teaser for the second part where we want to talk a bit more about how users download the software. But before we're you know still on the subject of decentralized governance, I'm just curious for people who aren't sure of the types of decisions that actually need to get made in blockchain systems or even in DeFi apps. Um, I think you did a good job sort of splitting this into two areas. Like number one, there's this category of decisions around funding public goods, right? How do you fund things for the continuance, the good of the protocol itself. Um, And the second is upgrades and improvements. So if there's some upgrade that needs to happen, who decides what features that should include or how that's pushed out? Could you get into these two things uh, and the decisions that need to be made through uh, decentralized governance? Right. Um, So there are basically, I mean, I I outlined two categories of uh, decisions that decentral, some kind of governance is needed for. Um, And so if uh, you want to be decentralized, that decentralized governance is needed for. One of those uh, categories is uh, funding public goods, uh, just funding people who, um, or teams that do things that are useful to the project's ecosystem, or even just more generally to the project's underlying goals. Um, so this includes things like documentation, like uh, software d- development, research, like basically anything where the benefit provided by what you're doing isn't something that can be kind of packaged up and separately sold to individual people, right? Like, uh, you know, we are, um, are doing this podcast and then that podcast, uh, you know, either it doesn't get published or it does get published. And then once it gets published, anyone can see it. Um, and then if I come up with an idea and I write it up on ETH Research, like I can't, you know, charge subscription fees for that idea and only give access to that idea to people who like pay some amount of money, right? It's, you know, either I do it for the world or I do it for nobody. Um, and 
they're in the internet world um a large portion of like pretty much all things are like that right um so though like funding those things is often a challenge because they tend because they suffer from the free rider problem right like if one person funds it and the and another person doesn't fund it well both people benefit and and so why would the first person fund it um so the um basic the the solution in the crypto space is basically like well if you have these protocols that do end up having some some kind of ability to monetize then you know like that funding could then be directed into these public goods somehow right like basically not every project that's useful has a monetization strategy um and so you what you basically do is you take the things that have monetization strategies and the things that are useful and you kind of like plug uh, line them up and plug them into each other right it's so it's um so this is one thing that needs that it, you need to have some governance uh, governance for because once you start funding public goods other than things that are really trivial to measure like for example network security uh, like other, once you start funding public goods um, such as like software development and documentation and translation and research that you can't measure programmatically then you need some kind of governance system in order to figure out well like which projects do you actually support in the first place right so that's one thing that governance is needed for the other thing is protocol upgrades and parameter changes. Um, so one example of this might be like, you know, in MakerDAO, you have uh, this question of like which assets are considered acceptable for collateral. I mean, I've actually been critical of like that aspect of MakerDAO. And like one of the reasons why I uh, liked Rai is because it just says, well, no, ETH is the only collateral that's ever going to exist. Um, and but even then you need governance to figure out like what is the oracle going to be like who are the oracle providers um in a system like uniswap um you would need governance to figure out um say yeah right now i think they use it to just well right now just for public goods funding but in the future it could be decide used to decide like parameters of like fees of existing markets and things like that um in anything more complex, um, like you would, let's see, like in something like uh, ENS, um, well, in the case of ENS, I mean, they have these, like they want to charge fees that are denominated in dollars. Um, but then, you know, what happens if, like, do they charge it in one particular stable coin? What if that one particular stable coin disappears? Do they have to switch to a different stable coin? Like, there's these decisions that have to be made, right? And then there's just protocol upgrades in general. Like, what if, uh, you know, they come up with a just completely better version of the protocol and they want to switch over uh, the current protocol to that future protocol without users uh, needing to, like, move everything that they're doing over manually? Um, so that's something that's uh, important as well. I mean, these could be pretty major decisions, right? When we're talking yeah. about like, um, you know, just even 10% of ETH annual issuance is like hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Mm -hmm. And the the governance power to direct that funding is quite a power indeed. Mm. Many of these DAOs also have, you know, billions of dollars in their treasury mm -hmm. and the power to direct that is quite a power indeed. So we're talking now about pretty high stakes, mm -hmm. not like the early days of crypto, where, you know, it was just kind of fun money. But like now we're talking about real systems, high stakes, mm -hmm. many users, billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, the other thing I wanted to bring up with protocol changes is that like sometimes you might not even realize that you need to do an upgrade, but you end up needing to do an upgrade. Like one example of this is um, 
let's say, for example, like you take Rye, right? It's, uh, you know, this uh, stablecoin project, they really value governance minimization. And so they're just going to say, we have this fixed formula, we're going to um, target um, a price stability with respect to the US dollar with this uh, kind of slightly floating mechanism to it to have an adjustable interest rate. And that's it. But what happens if, let's say, 20 years from now, the US dollar collapses, right? Like, I mean, this is, um, I mean, obviously, you know, like I tend to be kind of critical of, uh, you know, the Bitcoin maximalist types that say this is definitely going to happen. But also, like, I'm definitely not the type to say that there's a 0% chance this is going to happen. Um, so if the US dollar collapses in 20 years, then like rye holders are not going to want a US dollar, right? Because uh, the US dollar is just going to be something that's going to, you know, increase at a rate of like 10,000% one week and then 40,000% the next week. Um, and so... Like they're go in order for Rye to continue to be a useful product in that world, it has to basically make a decision and say like, no, we're violating our original social contract, and instead of uh, targeting the U.S. dollar, we're going to switch to, you know, either targeting some other national fiat that somehow stays stable, or potentially just like making their own CPI and targeting that. Um, and the government, like in that kind of extreme situation, you know, the governance is going to need to be able to make that kind of decision. Um, so, like how that could be done is um, one of those uh, also very challenging questions. Um, but you know, this is um, the sort of thing that like decentralized governance could be really useful for because, like especially decentralized governance, um, because. Uh, it's the sort of thing where if you require lots of different participants to agree in order to make that kind of big step, then like you can be confident that if there really is an emergency that demands that kind of uh, drastic move, then it will, then it can happen. But if there isn't an emergency and someone says like, "Hey guys, you should stop targeting the U.S. dollar. You should like start targeting, um, you know, Bob's like, uh, in." In index emporium number four two five five. Then uh, you know people. Like, even if uh, that he manages to corrupt a whole bunch of insiders, everyone else is going to go like WTF mate, and it's not going to happen, right? Um, so that's uh, you know, in, like that's another good example of where uh, governance can be needed, but and uh, like decentralized governance specifically could do even a better job than uh, governance uh, that's controlled by a centralized team because. You know, if the governance is controlled by a centralized team, then the centralized team can, like, even if some feature is intended to be only used in an emergency, well, the centralized team chooses what the emergency is. And so, you know, you don't have that much protection. Every new technology that we invent as humans brings something new to the table. And uh, mm -hmm. as we know, blockchains, crypto economic systems are coordination technologies, <laughs> they bring new coordination tools and lets us play with them. So what governance or decentralized governance tools has specifically blockchains like Ethereum actually unlocked for us? Like what are the new mechanisms of governance that we have now that we didn't have before? Hmm. Um, so things that you can do with Ethereum in general, um, I mean, large scale votes are definitely one thing. Like it, I mean, there obviously exist other platforms to do large scale votes, but just large scale votes where, you know, the outcome is verifiable, where the outcome is actually tightly coupled to the yeah, implementation. So you don't have to like trust someone to execute the outcome once the outcome gets made. Um, that's like a simple thing that you know can be done. Uh, you could even like use something like Macy um, as that a project improves over time and make the votes like privacy preserving and coercion resistant. Um, 
other things that you can do, like voting with more advanced uh, kinds of algorithms like uh, quadratic voting, uh, quadratic pairwise bounded voting, and all of these uh, fancy, t- uh, fancy types of voting. Um, another thing that you can do is... Uh, well, actually, one of the nice reasons one of the nice reasons why blockchains are quadratic voting friendly is that quadratic voting inherently involves like making payments in order to vote, um, and blockchains just happen to have a built-in payments platform. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that you can do is other kinds of mechanisms that kind of mix together markets and uh, kind of democratic approaches. Um, like one example of this is. Uh, retroactive public goods funding that I've been a big fan of recently, right? Like basically, you know, you have a kind of voting-based DAO that funds public goods retroactively. So after they've already been finished and they've already had some positive impact. And then if you want to um, invest, like, um, use retroactive public goods funding to get grants for something that you want to do, then what you can do is you can create a project token. You can announce that, you know, this project token reflects this my like my attempt to make this particular thing happen and i'm going to pre-mine some of that token to like my team and people that i think are like responsible for making this happen and obviously if the team disagrees then they can kind of fork off and make their own projects uh token um and then i can also sell some of that project's token to people who wants to who who wants to provide seed funding to this team right and then once uh, the retroactive once the project has a positive impact then the retroactive funding DAO can choose to basically use its funds in order to buy up the project token. And then like anyone who participated in building the project and also anyone who bought the project tokens to give seed funding ahead of time, like they both uh, end, end up getting rewarded, right? So in that case, like you have a democratic mechanism for funding thing, like for like doing this kind of end stage retroactive funding, but then you have a market mechanism for a kind of carrying over that end stage funding into uh, figuring out like what things are actually need funding in the seed stage. Um, so that kind of like mixing of uh, kind of market mechanisms and voting mechanisms is something that I think uh, blockchains are very uniquely friendly to as well. Um, so yeah, but. We have a lot of tools. This kind of gets into like some of the solutions that you're proposing toward the end of, of the article, right? Like different ways mm-hmm. to uh, govern some of these applications besides just a simple coin vote. Uh, and you mm-hmm. talked about the hazards of coin vote. I, you know, I want to get maybe to the to the to the base layer though. Here, it's like just with the advent of Bitcoin, say, and then later mm-hmm. Ethereum. I mean, they're governed in a similar way. Maybe we would call this ungovernance. Maybe we would call this mm-hmm. off-chain governance. I'm not sure. It's mm-hmm. interesting because it doesn't really fit in a... Um, I, I don't know that there's a name for it that people uh, would understand. Mm-hmm. Like, what is blockchain governance? We know what democracies are. We know what mm-hmm. you know uh, autocracies are and theocracies and all of these things. We know what a shareholder vote is in corporations. But like, what fundamentally is Bitcoin's governance or Ethereum's governance? Would you call it ungovernance? Would you call it rough consensus, off-chain governance? And what are the characteristics and properties of it? So this is actually the topic of uh, a post that I wrote way back in 2018. I think this is uh, the one uh, called uh, Notes on Blockchain Governance, where I basically talk about how like viewing governance as a kind of what I call a decision function, um, and basically some kind of like mathematical function that takes inputs and possibly payments from different participants. And then like, you know, you have a piece of code that then computes an output and that output is guaranteed to be executed like that. 
it doesn't even this is accurately cover like every like what we want out of um out of governance right like it's uh look the way that governance of these uh, systems ends up working is much more subtle right basically what happens is that like at the bottom layer, you have this uh, system where anyone can run whatever software they want. Normally, people agree with each other, but then if some people really disagree with the majority, they can fork off and they can do their own thing. And forking off is obviously messy and expensive, but if that's the only alternative to uh, like accepting some changes that you consider really unacceptable, then like people are going to do it, right? So that's like the bottom layer. And then the layer above that is, well, let's take that kind of layer zero and let's build coordination mechanisms to ensure that the yeah, like the nastiest outcomes that layer zero could lead to end up not happening, right? So let's build mechanisms to ensure that like most of the time when there is possibility of agreement, people do actually end up agreeing instead of like resort, um, resorting to their you know natural uh, right to, mu to exercise mutually assured destruction. Um, and that's... Uh, something that you know we you know we do with uh, like all sorts of uh, community signaling there's all core devs votes um, there's um, you know informal kind of um, signaling uh, coin votes uh, there's uh, kind of implicit votes on github there's uh, just conversations there's all sorts of these mechanisms by which people can kind of gauge um, you know if uh, some proposal is uh, looking like it has broad agreements or looking like it doesn't have broad agreement so on the blockchains, we have this base layer, Vitalik, yes. of like, it's the right to fork. It's the right to opt out, right? Mm -hmm. That's so important. And the, the next layer above that is basically this, this rough consensus idea. Mm -hmm. All of these different, you know, signals, social signals that, that um, feed into some signal as to whether the community will accept a change or not, or whether they'll fork, whether they'll resort to kind of violence in mm -hmm. that bottom layer. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, even with these two layers, maybe there are other layers you want to describe too, but are these two layers new for humanity? Like, is this a new thing that wasn't possible in the analog world? I think to some extent, um, the analog world has this as well, right? So like, let's say, like, you know, take the US as an example. Like, let's say the yeah, 2020 election went even crazier than it actually did. Mm. And let's say, for example, that, um, you know, the Supreme Court um, just uh, decided to... Um, make a nine out of nine decision that okay, well, let's go crazier than twenty twenty. The Supreme Court, um, like got like re got was given drugs by aliens that so they made a <laughs> nine out of nine um decision um that um I don't know no 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 can we like um, uh, pick a crazy guy like Kim Jong Un is the president of the United States <laughs> is is the president of the United States of America right. Like, technically, you could argue that, like, you know, quote, legally, the Supreme Court decides what the law is. And then, plus, like, I'm not sure exactly on the details of, like, who technically has to agree. But the aliens can drug a couple of other people. And they could make them just, like, decide this, like, just some incredibly crazy thing. And then, you know, if your model of... Uh, governance is that it's a decision-making function, then like, hey, the law says that like, if these people say this, then like, that's the decision that has to be executed. And all the and all Americans are going to have to bow down to Kim Jong-un now. But, you know, the reality is that if that happens, then, um, you know, the red and the blue are both going to be on the streets, and they'll be on the same side of the streets. And, you know, they're, they're going to storm all the buildings. And, um, you know, the, the, the people who got dr drugged by aliens, despite their legal power, are going to find... Uh, you know, the, the, uh, 
themselves um you know hopefully it'll be more more polite than literal ropes around their necks but they're not going to be in a good place and even the military is uh, probably like even if you drug the the aliens drug the guy at the top of the military like you know they're going to rebel as well right um so it's a, it's, a, it's not going to work out it's well. a coup it's a revolution <laughs> uh, you know it's a, that's what yeah. a hard fork is mm. in the real world right right exactly so it's uh, like the this idea that the like what actually happens in governance never matches what is formally described uh, 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 um, to happen by any kind of like attempt at a kind of math-like descri uh, description of the legal system. Like that's something that exists in I think lots of contexts today. Um, in other contexts, that's a bit less extreme and less violent. Uh, language, um, like uh, you know, who decides whether or not the word literally can mean metaphorically? Um, Urban dictionary. <laughs> Right. Um, or if I uh, like, if I start using the like, um, um, I don't know, the word amant for am not like that's something I was I was taught I should not be doing in school. But like, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, like I personally am not really the type to, to, to care about such things. So if I start using the word and if a bunch of other people like the word, then like it's what it becomes part of English. Um, so. Like, there definitely are lots of uh, like rough consensus like, based uh, constructs uh, in just all sort uh, in society in all sorts of places as well. Um, I think uh, where blockchains are interesting is that they yeah. They seem to like, occupy the sort of niche that's maybe somewhere in between how, um, like, say, national governments work and where and how something like language works, mm. right? Like, I think. Uh, Corporations, they tend to be closer to following the decision function view of governance because, like, you can't make a revolution because, like, um, ultimately, um, you know, like people end up uh, end up suing each other, and then the court um, accepts, uh, you know, comes up with a judgment, and everyone makes the judgment, and that's like ultimately kind of the like that's ultimately the last resort, um, but. You know, in the case of like a of a country like that kind of last resort doesn't exist. But you know, still at the same time, like you know, there, are, like it's it's only in these very difficult and extreme cases that this sort of like extra legal pressure um and like can influence the outcome. But in the case of a blockchain, right, like it's this sort of like informal pressure um and this knowledge that like you know if you piss the community off, they're gonna fork. Like that's something that has a lot it definitely has a lot more significance but at the same time the difference between a blockchain and say the english language is that in the english language forking is just trivial right like uh, like the the three of us can just decide that the word amant is like an okay word to use it's okay um, with me. And... is it okay with you david yeah, yeah, see, yeah I'm, I'm a fan amant okay yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, uh, you should have said I am an opponent. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, um, so the I, right, and the three of us can do that, and like anyone else who wants to join can do that, and anyone else who doesn't want want to join cannot, and like there is very little a uh, kind of, like net like social damage that comes as a result, right? Mm -hmm. Blockchains are not quite as extreme, but they're sort of in the middle, um, so they do occupy this interesting space, and I think. The fact that they're not quite so extreme does allow them to do important things that languages can't do, right? Like blockchains can create, like maintain rough consensus on like valuable assets and on like who currently controls valuable assets and who currently has like some position with respect to some kind of uh, valuable asset. And that's not really something that a language can do. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, like, 
so in some sense, like blockchains are both a different combination of existing ingredients, but they're also but they are also something that's genuinely new and offers new possibilities. Yeah, it's super fascinating because like forking a blockchain, of course, is a bloodless you know revolution. If if you will, and you know, because blockchains are generally open source, you mm. know, technology, uh, it is fairly easy to do. Essentially, it's it's always mm. an option. I think that might be part of the solutions you get to as well. It's like making these things easier to fork. But I want to ask about this because so we have this ungovernance, we have this off, you know, rough consensus mm-hmm. sort of uh, mechanism at the layer ones of blockchains, and that feels like a. Um, a good mechanism to use mm. at layer one. Um, but maybe you could comment on that. Why is kind of ungovernance the right to fork a good mechanism for layer one? And then why does it feel like it's just not a good mechanism for many of our DeFi apps? Like it mm. feels like we need some more significant governance for something like MakerDAO. Maybe not Rye, but like for MakerDAO, there are some decisions to be made mm. that can't be achieved by rough consensus. And it feels like we need token vote. Mm. So can you talk about that? I think the difference there is actually pretty similar to what I yeah, just uh, one of the examples I gave a couple of uh, minutes ago, which was like corporations versus governments, right? Like in a corporation, if there is a dispute, at the end of the day, there is uh, this, uh, like, you know, there is a legal process and ultimately people can sue each other and there is this kind of court system as a layer one that you can appeal to. Whereas in the case of a government, like if there is a disagreement about the law itself, then, you know, well, ultimately get the. Uh, it goes down to some of these kind of more raw and chaotic kind of extremities that we were discussing. Um, so, in the like, basically, the fact that um, applications like like corporations in a nation state, like they are a layer two that sits on top of a layer one, um, like means that, and also the fact that they control. Um, external assets, right? Like MakerDAO controls ETH, right? And so the problem is that if you try to just make a revolution inside of MakerDAO and fork the thing that the community like accepts as the legitimate MakerDAO, then the problem that you get is that, well, even if you, you know, you have this community agreement that the new fork is, you know, is the legitimate MakerDAO, well, guess what? Who controls the ETH ultimately is dependent on like what the code of the smart contract says. And so, like, you better hope that the code of the smart contract uh, is uh, damn good at actually reflecting what the uh, community's values are. Um, and, like, that's a hard problem. And in that case, like, that's uh, the problem that you uh, actually do have to go and solve, right? Whereas, like, if a layer one does on um, uh, does on chain governance and the on chain governance screws up, well, you know, you can still do a, uh, a do a fork to. Um, like you get around that on chain governance, whereas uh, with the layer two, like yeah, if the layer two gets gets or if the application gets hacked, then you know the application is screwed. If it uh, like you can't fork the application even in that case, mm-hmm. but you can sometimes. So like for example, one of my examples was like if ENS gets hacked, right? Then well, okay, like maybe there's money inside of ENS that would get stolen, but like people like. Everyone who currently pays um, uses the ENS system, they will just download updates to their software that start pointing to a fork of ENS. And so mm-hmm. that situation re- would resolve itself pretty peacefully, right? So the question is like, is the app- does the application control internal assets or does it control a kind of externally defined assets, right? And like a corporation inside a nation state, like 
if the only thing the corporation uh, controls is the corporation's own shares, then like theoretically, you don't even need a legal system because like if there's a dispute, then you know you can fork the corporation mm. and the fork would have new shares. But corporations they usually own like nation state defined dollars, nation state defined office space, nation state defined um, intellectual property. Um, I can define domain names, right? Like corporations own kind of like external capital in the same way that applications on Ethereum often own external capital. And whenever something owns external capital, then like you can't resolve governance with a purely internal forking system. And so you do need a, you know, quote on chain or kind of like codified governance of some kind. When you shop for plane tickets, you probably use Kayak, Expedia, or Google to compare ticket prices. So why would you limit yourself to just one exchange when you trade crypto? When you make your trades, you want to make sure that you're getting the best possible price on your trade and that you aren't paying high gas costs that you could have otherwise avoided. That's why you should be using Matcha. Matcha routes your orders across all the various DeFi exchanges on Ethereum, Polygon, Binance Smart Chain, and gives you the best possible prices without taking any commissions. Matcha has smart order routing that splits your order across multiple liquidity sources if Matcha sees that it gets you better pricing. Trading on Matcha is super easy because it pulls the liquidity for me into a single easy to use platform. Matcha also allows for you to make limit orders on chain so you can set and forget your DeFi trades and they will go through automatically while you're away. New to Matcha is an integrated fiat on ramp so you can purchase crypto directly with your credit or debit card and have that fiat be instantly traded for any token that has liquidity. When you're making a trade, head over to matcha.xyz slash bankless and connect your wallet to start getting the best prices and most liquidity when you trade your crypto assets. Bankless is proud to be supported by Uniswap. Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum, which is what Ryan and I call a money robot. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. Input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. Something brand new in the Uniswap ecosystem is the Uniswap Grants program is now accepting applications for grants. We have been saying this for a while and we'll say it again. DAOs have money and they are in need of labor. If you think that you have something to contribute to the Uniswap DAO, apply for a grant to Uniswap. Just look at the size of the Uniswap treasury. It's almost $3 billion. This mountain of capital is looking for labor. Do you have something of value to contribute to the Uniswap DAO? No matter how big or small your idea is, you can apply for a uni grant at unigrants.org and help steer Uniswap in the direction that you think it should go. That's exactly what we did to get Uniswap to be a sponsor for Bankless, and you can do the same for your project. Thank you, Uniswap, for sponsoring Bankless. So we've gone and talked about um, what parts of a tech stack need what kind of governance. Uh, you know, layer ones have rough off-chain governance, but when we talk about applications on the layer ones, that's when we have a, a wider array of possible governance strategies. We've also talked about why we need to have governance in the first place and why we can't just completely strip away all governance. Sometimes things happen that needs to be updated. And as we've been circling around, we were coming to this point of conversation is to okay, we have a bunch of things in DeFi on Ethereum that do need to have governance and they are generally all just using coin votes for governance. Um, but you are advocating that there's more, more diverse and more rich possibilities uh, that we can get into to have better governance. But let's talk about why coin voting sucks. Um, what options do people have in DeFi that kind of taints 
or ruins the power of coin voting. Mm -hmm. Right. So the thing that coin voting really relies on um, for kind of the philosophical arguments for why like, it makes sense is this idea that it couples economic interests and governance power, right? Mm -hmm. Like coin voting and governance is supposed to work because the people with the coins have the votes. Um, and so the people who have economic interest in the protocol success are the ones that have the governance power to make the success happen. The problem is that financialization is extremely good at separating out um, like different parts of an asset if the people uh, in that uh, in that asset want them to be separated. And like most people, like because each individ each individual person only has such a tiny and insignificant share of the governance power, most people do not value their governance power that highly, right? Like even. If there aren't any attackers, it's very hard to get people to be willing to vote at all. Like voter participation rates in most coin voting systems are tiny. And then if there is the ability to just kind of like split up your your token that has the built the economic interest and the governance power, and say like there's going to be token A that has just the economic interest and token B that has just the governance power, and then you can go like uh, rent out your token B um, and keep your token A. Like that's a deal that a lot of people are going to find attractive, right? And financial systems are just inherently about doing this kind of unbundling. And so, you know, of course, there's going to be lots of different ways to do that kind of unbundling. Um, in my post, I talked about two specific ways to do the unbundling, right? Like one specific way is you just have a smart contract where, like, it's basically a wrapper token, right? Like the same way, you know, you wrap your ETH and you have WEF, uh, you can wrap your maker and you have wrapped maker. Except this raft maker has this very specific property that, well, it's now the raft maker contract that that controls the, the that that kind of technically owns your maker and has the rights to do governance with the maker, and so the raft maker and the raft maker contract is just gonna like uh, auction off like uh, every single vote, and let's say it's gonna give half the auction revenue to whoever wrote this wrapper contract and half the auction revenue to you, right? And so, you know, every maker holder that is going to like individually find it in their interest uh, to just stick their maker into the wrap maker contract because it pays interest, but actually like, well, it's uh, concentrating all their governance uh, power uh, kind of collectively in the hands of a few potentially unaligned actors, right? So that's method one. Um, Sometimes people find method one unrealistic because it it just requires token holders to do th something that's just feels so blatantly unethical. Um, but like, which is fair, right? Like, I think like even if uh, token holders like. Like, even if the amount, like, they are suffering from this kind of tragedy of the commons problem where they have the ability to sell their governance rights to the highest bidder, like, a lot of them, they do kind of, like, feel this altruistic concern for MakerDAO as a whole, and they don't want to, they want to feel like they're, you know, part of this exciting community and they're not selling them out. And so, like, you know, they might not want to stick their maker into the, into the system. Um, also... Sometimes, like, if people stick their maker tokens into this wrap maker contract, well, other people might, like, analyze the blockchain and figure out who they are, um, and uh, then they're going to have social consequences and all of these things, right? Um, so you might argue that for these reasons, like, this kind of super blatant um, bribing attack is unrealistic. But then there's also a much more subtle governance attack, right? And the much more subtle attack basically says, well... Let's just use uh, like DeFi lending protocols, right? Like, let's say um, I have uh, some uh, maker tokens. Then one thing I could do is um, I could use my maker tokens and I, or I could lend out some of my yeah, maker tokens and I could get paid interest. And then if I am an attacker who wants to like participate in some governance decisions, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a whole pile of ETH 
and I'm going to stick that ETH into the into a CDP, and then I'm going to borrow some maker, and I'm going to use my borrowed maker to have uh, to, to do whatever governance things I want to do. Now, if you analyze that situation, right, the person who borrows the maker, they don't actually have an economic interest in maker because whatever the price of maker is, they're going to have to pay it back, right? Um, so the person who is borrowing the maker, they have governance power, they do not have economic interest. And then the person who is lending them the maker, the person who actually stick, stuck the maker into the DeFi lending system and is getting interest rates off of that, they they still have the economic interest because they still have the right to eventually get that maker back, but they do not have the governance power because at that particular time, that maker is in someone else's hands. Um, so one person has uh, governance rights, but not economic interest. The other person has economic interest, but not governance power. And so even though it does not look like a bribe, the, 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 the practical consequences are exactly the same as, it, as uh, they are in the, uh, in the raft maker bribing contract case, right? So, and that's just decentralized bribing. There's also like examples of centralized uh, kind of de facto bribing that already happens. Like one example is that lots of people store their coins on exchanges. And if you store your coin on an exchange, um, like that exchange offers you personally a bribe in the form of services, in the form of convenience, and in the form of uh, like fast ability to trade and all of those things. Um, but then the exchange, like, has formal control over your tokens and the exchange can like basically controls the governance power right you have the economic interest the exchange has the governance power and now a lot of the time exchanges say oh we're going to be nice and we're going to not either not participate in governance or we're going to run internal polls among our users um and and uh, so we're, we're going to kind of like pass through the governance power but sometimes exchanges do exercise it right like yeah uh, i talk about the tron steam situation where justin sun ended up like basically making his final attack by cooperating with exchanges and using coins that people had inside of exchanges in order to vote um so these kinds of things do actually happen right so basically like the conclusion is that like once because of just all of these different forms of like financialization and like just the DeFi and CeFi being really good at unbundling, like you just have you end like, even though the system is supposed to bundle um, governance power and economic interest, it ends up it can easily end up not bundling those two things anymore. Um and once it stops bundling those two things, then like basically governance just becomes an auction and every decision gets sold to the highest bidder and like that can start looking um, ugly very quickly. Kind of uh, sounds like how Congress maybe works to uh, to to the skeptic. <laughs> I'm not sure, <laughs> but, but like so, th there are these issues. But like also, um, there are issues. I think um, people see every day, like whales, kind of controlling uh, the vote mm. in in many of these systems, and. Maybe you'd argue that's a good thing because they have the most economic incentive. But there are cases where, like, uh, you know, I, I don't know mm -hmm. all the particulars, but like, let's say there's a raid on Uniswap, right? And this, mm -hmm. you know, colluding set of actors rewards, uh, you know, with nepotism their friends mm -hmm. or their family, and they award uh, these people a specific Uniswap grant, mm -hmm. for instance, rather than another set of people. So there are issues like that too. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, Vitalik, though, like, where do we go from here? Mm -hmm. So we have. It seems like these two governance forms that are active and working in uh, blockchains, and that is the rough consensus, 
you know, ability to fork. And then we have for everything else, really, all the, the app layer that's built on uh, cryptocurrencies and on Ethereum, it's all token vote. Mm. But like, where do we go from here? You mentioned a couple of uh, solutions. There are a few more maybe we should cover. Like, mm. um, is there a way to do some sort of one person, one vote, proof of participation? Mm. Uh, do we need decentralized identity first? What are some of the solutions that yeah. the, the community should pursue? So I think like before I get the solutions, actually, I wanted to comment on the whale thing a bit because uh, like the whales are an interesting double-edged sword, right? Like one of the points that I make in the article is that I think the reason why, um, despite all of this economic theory that says that coin voting governance should break, coin voting governance mostly has not broken so far, is because in practice the token holdings of a lot of those projects are very centralized and. Like if more than half the supply is controlled by 10 people and the 10 people know each other, then like each of those 10 people is not going to go betray everyone else by sticking their um, maker <laughs> into a wrapped maker contract and collecting 1% interest, right? There's um, off-chain reputation at stake. Yeah, exactly. And those off-chain reputation effects are strong precisely because there is there are these uh, kind of whale boys clubs that like, control a large portion of the, of, uh, the, the supply of these <laughs> systems, right? Um, so... You have this effect where the systems are like secure from being outright attacked in part precisely because of the centralization. Um, but at the same time, like the centralization is something that has genuine risks, right? Like one example might be like, you know, what if there is some decision in the future to like stick mandatory KYC into one of these applications and the whales end up being in favor of it because, you know, the whales have close connection to, say, CFI interests um, that wants to be friendly with um, whoever those regulators are or whales. Um, like they, yeah, they care about, you know, institutional adoption and, and um, in the, the institutions like they, yeah, they want a, yeah, like a system where, you know, kind of, quote, unidentified actors can't participate in all that. And so like, you could easily have a small group of whales that will like, want decisions to go in that one direction of just accept, like throwing in mandatory KYC to just to use the platform. But it, while that's something that the rest of the community does not want. Um, and so there are like these kinds of real like misalignment risks from kind of coin, like, coin centralized coin voting or i guess vote coin voting with concentrated coin holdings and you know we do want something better um but at the same time you know we want something better that's not attackable so what is that thing that's better and not attackable um yeah tell us yeah so i gave a couple of ideas um one of those is um incorporate kind of like one person per uh, or one vote per person voting of some kind. Um, so I talk about proof of humanity a lot, right? It's this project where, you know, if you're a human, then you can go, uh, put up your, your profile and uh, you can, you basically get like essentially an NFT that says like, Hey, you are a unique person. Um, and uh, that's something that other applications can then link into and they can say like, Hey, like for example, you know, if you are one unique person, then you can get up to one unit of governance power. Um, or if you are a unique person, then, you know, you get like, th there's even a UBI token that just like gives uh, some number of UBI coins to every person like per uh, period, or I think it's like, it might even be given continuously. Um, and so you just have like actual sort of formally democratic kind of like one per person governance. 
that's one approach. Um, my concern with one person, one vote is that one person, one vote fails to distinguish between a kind of different levels of commitment that different people have. Yeah. And like, like in any of these systems, like there are people that should have hundreds of times more of voting power than other people because those people like care hundreds of times more, put, hundred, uh, put hundreds of times um, like bigger chunks of their lives into the project. And like that's uh, something that also needs to be recognized, right? Now, coin voting does try to recognize this, but it recognizes it in a way that also ends up empowering whales a lot. Um, one idea that's interesting is uh, like you could have quadratic, like if you uh, use uh, proof of humanity things, you can have quadratic uh, coin governance. So you can say, you know, if you have n tokens, then you have square root of n governance power. And that would be an interesting um, kind of hybrid that gets us uh, the best of both worlds. Now, I think like in that kind of situation, you know, to prevent this kind of governance financialization that I talked about, you would need to use like something like Macy or like one of these um, anti-collusion gadgets to prevent people from like basically you know, like credibly selling their vote, their governance power to other people. But, you know, these are things that are being worked on already. Right. Which is great. Um, so that's one idea. Um, another idea is. Instead of having governance be done by token holders, you could have governance be done by like what I would call badge holders, like basically holders of something that is like some kind of non-transferable token that gets allocated to participants that are kind of decided like somehow. Like it could be bootstrapped with some centralized set, and then there could be some mechanism for updating them over time. They're just somehow selected as being like just good contributors that provide like important governance input. And like that could be used as just like providing a kind of an alternative chamber of governance that's like reasonably like both high quality and dedicated to the project and disconnected enough from the uh, token holders that it can provide a check and balance in case like the um, in case token holder governance just goes in a completely crazy direction. Um, so that's another idea. A third idea is. Like you can say, well, we're going to have coin governance, but in order to limit the harm that it can do, we're going to try to limit the power of coin governance in certain ways. And projects do do this to some extent, right? Like, for example, in Uniswap, the coin governance can only do like one thing, which is it can only issue new uni tokens. Um, and like you can basically turn like, turn the fee on and like the 0.05% portion of the fee on and off. Um, and... In that case, like the good thing is that if the coin governance completely breaks, then someone can just fork the token and they can fork Uniswap, they can still fork everything. And like it's not that and even until the fork happens, like Uniswap continues to be useful. Um, the people who like put their liquidity um, uh, shares in, like they can still take their liquidity shares out. There's no way for the governance to steal the liquidity shares. So the power that the governance has is uh, uh, very limited. Another example of limited governance power is that a lot of DeFi projects, they have a time delay before the, any governance decision takes effect. And that time delay gives people time to like move their money out if a project breaks. Now, a lot of the time, these time delays are fairly short. They're like one day or one week. I personally am a big fan of time delays that are much longer. Like I'm a fan of time delays of at least two months. Um, like basically, you want something that's long enough so that even lazy users who bear who only pay a little bit of attention to the protocol have like enough time to discover that, like, hey, there's something crazy happening, and they should consider moving out of the project and moving on to a fork. Vitalik, but some of these trade offs are like, don't they affect your decision making, um, mm -hmm. like speed? Yeah, and they do. Can't that potentially mm -hmm. put a protocol 
in a uncompetitive mm-hmm. position relative to its peers? Um, they can, um, I think, but I think in general, like if something is decentralized at all, then like it's not competing on like a rapid, like like day-to-day scale agility. Like it's competing on the uh, ability to provide its, um, its users promises of stability. And now I do think that in early stages, while a product is still rapidly evolving, it makes sense to have shorter time windows. But like I personally am a fan of time windows that potentially even programs to increase programmatically. Like maybe the time window should be proportional to a percentage of the t- of uh, the time since the project launched. Like after a year, it's a week. After two years, it's two weeks. After three years, it's three weeks or something like that. Um, like basically, I think um, projects, like there is a need for rapid um, decision-making, especially in early stages. But the rapid, like the early stages should always be designed, uh, designed and with the mindset that eventually the rapid stage is going to end and the project is going to transition into something whose rules are like more focused around uh, giving people stability than um being able to like a- adapt really quick way to changes and circumstances in one week instead of six so vitalik i feel like we've extensively covered this topic of decentralized governance and it seems like the key message is like hey, let's not build this entire DeFi ecosystem, this entire app layer ecosystem on coin voting. It's brittle, mm. you know, and maybe there are some other mechanisms the community can start experimenting with. Mm. Let's not just, um, you know, use coin vote as the shelling point. Mm-hmm. But I want to, you know, pull back another thread that, that you were talking about earlier when we were talking about the ability of users to opt into software, download their own software. Mm. Um, this is something we, we're, we're kind of seeing, and we see maybe every bull market, this conversation of when uh, transaction fees start to, to go up mm-hmm. because there's demand for block space, then inevitably there come you know a number of projects who, who just say, hey, we can create more block space. Mm-hmm. We can solve the scalability trilemma. Mm. Um, and you know this, this decentralization thing, like, maybe it's not so necessary and maybe it's not even necessary for users to have the ability to run their own nodes. Mm. Maybe scalability of transaction speed is more important. You wrote another uh, post called the limits of blockchain scalability Mm. that maybe we want to tug on a little bit, but this was like in response to um, Elon Musk. I think we had triggered this uh, conversation where he's talking about doge speeds. And um, he said, ideally, doge speeds up block time by 10x, increases block size by 10x, and drops fees 100x, then it wins hands down, right? It's, it's kind of this notion like, mm-hmm. hey, um, we, we're coming to crypto and we need more scalability and, mm-hmm. and I've got the solution. We just increase everything by 10x or 100x. Mm-hmm. Can we have a conversation about the limits of scalability? I, I think, in fact, that's um, that's your post uh, title. But uh, maybe let's start here. Why is it so important for individuals, individual users, to have the ability to run nodes? David and I were just in a conversation with uh, you know, a group who were talking about another non-Ethereum blockchain, and we're having this debate as to whether it indeed is important for individuals to run nodes. They were making mm-hmm. the point that it wasn't. We can get into some of those mm-hmm. uh, critiques. But from your perspective, why is it so essential for individuals to have the ability to run non-validating blockchain nodes? Mm, um, so the thing that a uh, blockchain node does, um, I think non-participating might be better. Uh, might be better than non-validating because the thing that the that the node does is it validates, like in the sense of verifies the every block that's coming in, and it checks that everything in the blockchain actually is happening according to the rules, right? So if 
uh, like Ethereum users all switch to using light clients, for example, then what would happen is that um, the like more than fifty percent of the yeah, consensus participants, the yeah, you know miners or stake validators, could just come together and say like, hey, you know, we're going to make a change to the rules. Like we're gonna like say throw in a dev funds that that distributes like an extra five billion coins to our friends, or we're gonna double um staking interest rates because we decided that we need that or whatever. Um and users are going to be at an extreme disadvantage in like even being able to rebel against that change because like their clients are going to accept the blocks by default, right? Because a user does not see um that a the uh, uh the change was made and that the new blocks are no longer valid according to the old rules because all they see is the headers. Like the, the users are by default not going to reject the new blocks. They're just going to kind of keep humming along as though nothing went wrong. And users are only really going to detect that something happened like possibly hours into the future, right? Like maybe one some, one community actor is going to be make an alert um, and then over the course of a couple of, of hours that um, a word is spreading to spread over social media. And then a couple of hours later, more people are going to wake up. Um, and well, well, by the time um, that and, like users um, understand what's going on and they're really upset about it, um, basically, there will have already been like eight hours of blockchain activity that happened. Um, and that like there could have been really a lot of really important things that happened there. And like, well, guess what? there's going to be large constituencies that are already going to be against uh, reverting the chain. And it would be, the onus would be on the users to successfully coordinate reverting the chain, right? Or the onus would be on the users to make a fork. And even when the users make a fork, they would be disadvantaged in making a fork because, well, if the blockchain is big, then syncing the blockchain is hard and syncing the blockchain is going to take like a week instead of an hour. And so there's going to be a huge amount of downtime before a fork can start. Uh, basically, the entire game ends up being tilted heavily against users that are that, uh, that are trying to rebel against that sort of situation. There's no protection against the elites is how you phrase things in your article. Exactly. Like the game is tilted in favor of the elites winning by default. Um, whereas if... Um, you take something like Bitcoin or Ethereum, where you do have uh, lots of users running nodes. Um, Ethereum, by the way, definitely can be better at this. And like, a lot of the things like stateless clients, like for example, that we're doing are fundamentally about Ethereum becoming better at this. Um, like, like basically, if you have at least lots of no users running nodes, then what's going to happen um, is that what's the if the majority of these stakers kind of quietly agree on this protocol change and they push the protocol change through, then the uh, like by default, the users are just going to see that those blocks are invalid and they're going to ignore them, right? And so when the users wake up, like what they're going to see is they're going to see that there's one chain and that one chain has like, for some reason, 80% of the stakers from their point of view just went offline, right? Like all they see is they see their chain and they see that 20% of stakers or whatever it is that are still staking on that chain. And so they think, okay, well, 80% of the stakers went offline. When in reality, of course, 80% of the stakers are continuing to make their own chain that follows different rules, but the users just by default, they, yeah, like, they might see some invalid block errors, but like from the user's point of view, it looks extremely close to those 80% just going offline, right? And so here, the default is tilted very much in favor of like this cabal uh, that wants to change the rules of losing. Um, and when the cabal loses, um, then like basically, like they don't just... 
they end up uh, in, in the case of proof of stake even like their validators would just all get inactivity leads they lose a huge amount of money um and for the rest of their users like their user experience only experiences like a tiny degradation because well for like a couple of days instead of uh, having a block every 12 seconds, they're going to have a block every 60 seconds or whatever, right? And that's something that like, okay, fine, you know, the gas price goes up to 2000 GUI for a bit, but like, you know, the chain keeps on running. Um, so it's a sort of situation where like, uh, they, yeah, the, the default is tilted in favor of uh, the uh, regular users and people who oppose the fork not suffering that much, and the people that tried to force the fork to, uh, um, uh, through um, suffering a really huge amount. Um, so that uh, the closer we can get to that world, the better, right? Um, and the further away we get for, uh, we get from that world, the worse. Um, and so so in order for that world to exist, though, it needs to not only be possible to, for regular users to run a node, but it needs to be easy enough for regular users to run a node that regular users choose to do it and don't get too lazy, right? Like if the uh, the amount of hard disk space needed for a node is two thirds of your hard drive, then sure you can technically run it, but you know realistically, if you want to like have your video games on your on your laptop as well, then like you're not gonna want to run your node, and so you're gonna still feel like eh, you know whatever. I'm just gonna go like uh, hook up to a light client or hook up to Infura or whatever. Um, but if, on the other hand, a node only takes up like 10% of your hard drive, then suddenly running a node is a much more reasonable value proposition. Um, so that's the sort of uh, like the sort of world that we want to live in, right? Like, oh, the world where running a node is something that's both possible for average users, but even something where users like can do it, even if they're fear even if they're fairly lazy and they're not that willing to like endure a large amount of inconvenience. Um, and I think it's a world that we can get to. Um, I think uh, you know, even with Ethereum blocks being as large as they are, like there's been. The Geth team has been doing an amazing amount of work on improving client efficiency. Um, statelessness could mean that you can have verifying nodes that do not require any hard disk space. Um, state expiry could mean that the hard disk space required for even a state storing node goes down to like 40 gigabytes or something small. Um, you know, eventually you could even, you know, we're going to ZK snark the EVM and so a, a node can just verify a snark instead of verifying transactions. Um, the node would still have to verify data availability, um, but, you know, we, we can get to a, you know, um, a world where running a node is very easy. Um, and even today, even without the fancy technology, um, Ethereum is still like much closer toward a you know, world where running a node is easy than like almost basically any other of these kind of high th uh, blockchains that's, that, that has a large amount of usage. Um, so that's something we, that we want to preserve and build on. Vitalik, I want to keep on actually parsing this apart, but I want to ask this question from a different frame of reference than what you were just talking about. You talked about how the Ethereum community could be better at running nodes, and that's how that's something that you kind of aspire towards as a mm -hmm. part of this Ethereum community is like we could all be doing this a little bit better. Um, mm -hmm. then there's a relationship between like the culture that we want to have of the people that make up our blockchain mm -hmm. with the actual technology that is a part of the blockchain. And so you, you talked about how like, okay, great. Like we have, I have my computer and it has a terabyte of data storage, 
but I just have my computer. I don't necessarily have a computer that I specifically dedicate for all of its resources to running a node. Mm -hmm. And so you're talking about making as a values choice for the Ethereum blockchain, mm -hmm. you want it to make a reduce the costs so that the individual user can be uh, enabled to run a node where we've seen other, like mm -hmm. I would imagine Binance Smart Chains, which are forks of Ethereum or Avalanche, which is a fork of Ethereum, mm -hmm. have just juiced up these... Um, juice up these metrics about running a node to the point where like it actually sucks up every computational uh, resource that a computer has. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about the importance of establishing a culture around running nodes and what that can do for the security of a blockchain and as that relates to the hardware requirements? Um, sure. Um, so you know, the, the culture of running nodes basically just means that, you know, there just needs to be all of this different uh, kind of infrastructure development and just like mindsets of, of uh, users that like just mm -hmm. running a node is something that happens by default, right? And uh, that's the sort of thing that you can have more of and um, that you can have less of. Um, so one example of this, for example, like one way that Ethereum can improve is um, when the merge happens, right? The merge, one of the things that we have in the proof of stake design is a much better light client. And uh, when we have a much better light client, so one of the advantages of this is that the light client, it will be possible to just have the light client be inside, a inside of your browser, right? So you could imagine a MetaMask-like wallet or hopefully MetaMask itself um, upgrading so that instead of just trusting Infura for information about the blockchain, like it, it asks for Merkle branches and it actually verifies those Merkle branches against the light clients and it checks that, you know, hey, like the you actually have this light client that's run that's kind of listening to the blockchain itself and getting the information about what the latest blocks are. Now, the light client is still not doing full validation, so it's still vulnerable to a 51% attack. Um, but at the same time, it's still much better than you know being vulnerable to an inferior attack, right? Um, so that's uh, one of the like that's one example of a way that Ethereum can improve, and I think I'm I'm, I'm hoping will improve um, after the merge. Um, one of these kind of underrated benefits of the merge uh, to having some more of a yeah, node running culture. Um, another example of this, of course, is that if uh, it continues to become easier to just run a node on your local computer, and like, there's all sorts of these work streams that are trying to make that happen, then that's uh, some, you know, if more people start doing that, then like you could imagine more people just running their own node, um, and then you could you could just have more people, you know, instead of uh, talking to Infura, they could just um, have this, uh, uh, when they access um, just random Ethereum applications through Web3, like they would just talk to their own node um, and uh, their own node would give them information about the blockchain. Um, I think uh, that that even offers um, uh, potentially um, a, a bunch of privacy benefits. Like the, the, there's potentially even, even like good reasons for the user to do that, right? But once you have a critical mass of users doing that, then that just makes it much harder for like kind of proof of stake, like validating elites or like pools or mining pools or mining elites to kind of do, do any kind of like um, hostile takeover without people's consent. Um, and also like it reduces uh, the yeah, decisive power that... Um, the uh, like centralized providers have in uh, deciding on like whether or not to adopt a hard fork that like isn't evil but actually just is controversial. Um, so, like the more you have a node running culture, the more the kind of the layer zero, this kind of final um, layer of last resort in decision making, um, actually uh, ends up uh, being a genuinely democratic one.
So Vitalik, we've had a number of conversations with, I would say, maybe a high throughput chain apologists, mm. right? <laughs> Let's call them that, right? Mm. And so th- this is kind of how they would counter some of the things that you're saying, mm. right? Um, basically, everything you, you said would be really nice, Vitalik, if everyone ran their own node. Mm. But practically, mm-hmm. they'll say, Vitalik, how many people do you know who actually run their own ETH node? And now, you probably know a lot, mm-hmm. <laughs> of course, mm-hmm. but like for the average person, mm-hmm. are they actually running their node? That like the subtext is, hey, the the, the battle is lost, mm-hmm. right? It's too late. Ethereum already like relies very heavily on third parties like Infura and Alchemy to power some of its app layer uh, services. So it's kind of like if you can get past having all users have the ability to run their node. And I understand that 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 would be a nice. I guess, balance of power. But if you can get past that and realize that's not practical in the real world, then we could boost up throughput by a heck of a lot. And, um, you know, is that so bad? And is Ethereum, like, practically not allowing everyday users to run a note anyway today? And so why don't we just make that trade-off? Is it kind of a trade-off, like, I mean, you've you've written posts before about, you know, Bitcoiners not being comfortable with weak subjectivity, mm. but uh, Ethereum is, for instance, mm-hmm. you know, or is this, is there something even more important about users running their, their, their own nodes that make this kind of an ironclad trade-off that chains shouldn't make? What's your take here? I think um, like this uh, gets back to the concave versus convex post that we talked about a while ago, right? Like I, I think people think people seem to keep wanting to trade offs to be binary, but they they never are, right? They're like in the like a, ten people running Ethereum nodes is better than one person running an Ethereum node. A hundred people running Ethereum nodes is better than ten people running Ethereum nodes, and ten thousand people running Ethereum nodes is better than a hundred people running Ethereum nodes. So like I think there are more and more things that you lose. The, the further and further away you get from Ethereum being a node running culture. So like just some examples of this, right, is uh, you obviously lose a lot when you move away from Ethereum people running nodes by default. Um, you lose even more when you move away from the ability to run a node as a hobbyist. You lose even more once you start thinking about not just users, but services, like even exchanges deciding that they're too lazy to run a node. Um, and, you know, it t- it's complicated to figure out how to like get this $5,000 server working and, they ha- and they're running like 57 different chains anyway. And, so, and once you have services like exchanges of themselves making the trade-off to be lazy and go uh, talk to a centralized provider, right? And then once you start talking about, you know, staking pools, um, like sharing node infrastructure, like the more centralized you get, like, you know, it's not, it's very much not binary. You either have it or you don't. Like you either, you could have all of it, you can have less of it, you can have even less of it. And the, the, the more and more you lose, the more, the progressively more and more dystopian the system gets, right? I think like there might have, I'm pretty sure there have even been cases in the wild of like, either staking pools or exchanges or other kinds of major actors like that are just sharing node in um, um node infrastructure or just kind of offloading that to centralized providers right and like the more of that you get then the more the set of people you have to like uh, you have to get on your side to make a hard a hostile hard fork happen like shrinks from you know 10,000 to 100 to 10 um or potentially even lower um so uh, i think uh, i believe actually even in the case of eos i can't I can't remember exactly, but I remember vaguely hearing about this sort of thing happening. Like, I remember hearing about this uh, kind of like 
some like basically running an EOS node took so take, took a lot of resources, and so even some of the validators, um, like even some of the like 100 delegates, um, ended up being too lazy and ended up kind of outsourcing their node running to someone else. Um, so yeah, like you know, you think that we've given up the fight, but no, like there's way more fights that we could lose. Vitalik, I recently asked you this on Twitter, and I'd love to dive into the subject even more. And it's becoming very, very uh, in vogue to to talk about this subject because we're all kind of realizing that it's here, uh, or at least the beginnings of it. So what, in your mind, is this metaverse thing? What is the metaverse? Hmm. I guess, um, like, it's this general concept, right, that, you know, you have, like, like you have the internet, but then you try to you're trying to sort of take the internet to the next level with some kind of like greater level of immersiveness, I guess. Now, what that immersiveness is, I think, is still really vague in a lot of people's minds. Like to some people, it just means you have really good virtual reality, um, and you have like some kind of internet that like feels like it's seamlessly integrated with the virtual reality. Um, to some people, it refers to some notion of like shared objects and shared state. Like you know, you can have like you know the magic sword from one game and then you can port it over and like move it to your other game or it can move your entire character to another like a world and still keep the same skin and the same like uh, other uh, kinds of details um you know you could even have these uh, kind of virtual environments that all um that all talk to each other like you could have you know nfts that have that, that get assigned meaning that gets respected in like multiple people's uh, kind of applications and sort of sub-universes. So I think uh, like people use the term for a lot of things and it's still very vague in people's minds, but there is this notion that this sort of interconnectedness is something that people want. And I think like that's a big reason why something like Ethereum is really well suited to be as a, a central part of the metaverse. Like because uh, you know Ethereum is this environment that's really well suited for like creating these objects where those objects like once say you create them they can then easily be moved around between different applications and they can have like value assigned to them or value respected by different platforms. Um, like one interesting example of this actually, like I guess there was this loot project that like I think mm -hmm. popped up a couple of days ago, right? Like you have these NFTs and every NFT by itself is just like a bit of text, right? It's like, you know, like wizard's robe of the tiger and like ma um, magic sword of Excaliburness or whatever, or whatever, <laughs> whatever. Um, and uh, the like, okay, fine. You have NFTs that are a bunch of text. And you have this ecosystem of all sorts of different like applications created by community members where those, applic those applications then assign meaning like, it could be assigning pictures, it could be assigning like stats, it could be assigning all sorts of things um, to these objects, right? And so you have this uh, basically virtual world that not only like, like it even goes beyond decentralized, decentral lands type things where like you just have like a decentralized substrate. You have a virtual world that here that has collaboratively created laws of physics. Mm. Um, and that's something that seems potentially really powerful, right? Um, you know, what people are going to do with the metaverse, I yeah, I, mean, I don't know yet. I mean, it seems like there's a lot of space for creativity. Like I could, use, I, I definitely see it becoming a, yeah, a really powerful and kind of interesting place to do all kinds of gaming things. Um, what other things people will do? Like, does it make sense to, um, you know, have... Uh, like have a work meeting inside of the metaverse as opposed to just like doing it in a Zoom, a Zoom call or whatever, whatever. I don't know. I think people are still 
Um, figuring that out, we'll see. Um, you know, are we going to have like social platforms that are like more deeply connected as part of the metaverse somehow? Like, are there going to be conferences and, you know, in the metaverse? And what does that even mean? Like, I think these things are still being figured out. Um, I, I do think that the Ethereum like ecosystem has a big um, opportunity to be in the middle of this whole transition. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Well, uh, I was about to bring up loot next, but you did it for me and, and took uh, and <laughs> ran exactly where we, I wanted to go with this. I, I, right before we hopped on a call with you, I tweeted out, loot is Ethereum coming full circle uh, because uh, Vitalik originally created <laughs> Ethereum because of his World of Warcraft items that got nerfed by Blizzard. And now we have this metaverse that is actually instantiating the, <laughs> the values that you wanted to have loot in your World of Warcraft account exist in the first place. Um, and so, like, uh, you said Ethereum is, has the opportunity to be at the center of, of this whole thing. And uh, I recently just uh, put out an article on Bankless that more or less talked about exactly like this, where Ethereum is an object issuance platform. And that's all it needs to be to offer this skeleton or this structure to allow this metaverse hmm. to ascribe meaning and and purpose to the value to the objects that Ethereum has uh, inside of its state. Uh, and so the the kind of the what I'm trying to wrap my head around is like, is Ethereum like this first uh, skeletal structure that allows for the metaverse to kind of like envelop around it. Mm, yeah, and I think uh, Ethereum's definitely like gone further than anything that we've um, that we've seen before, right? Now, again, in in a lot of different ways, mm. right? Like the, the, there's definitely been this kind of this rich object ecosystem in Ethereum. There's been this rich kind of gaming ecosystem in Ethereum, and you know, with like Dark Forest, the ZK game, and all these other things. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been this rich, yeah, and also financial ecosystem that's also a type of object. Um, like actually seeing these different pieces like start talking to each other, and uh, it'll be very fascinating. Mm-hmm. Vitalik, as we come to a close here, uh, and again, thank you for your time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to just kind of check in with the update on Ethereum. Since we last talked roughly three months ago, mm-hmm. EIP-1559 has come live with the London hard fork. The Beacon Chain has launched. This new NFT mania has made Ethereum closer to a household name than it ever has before. Mm-hmm. So how would you describe Ethereum in its current state in history? Like where where are we in the course of Ethereum history? Help us, help us uh, mm-hmm. find ourselves. Where are we? And we're on the finish lines of the merge, right? I think that's uh, the most important thing right now with uh, EIP-1559 behind us. Like there's basically nothing else as like something like right in front of us that was that um, lots of people are really putting their souls into and focusing on. Um, and EIP-1559, I think in addition to, um, you know, both correctly proving out the burn and correctly proving that it manages to actually really increase the uh, user uh, experience efficiency of sending transactions. And uh, I don't know what experience you've had, but like for me, it definitely feels like it's much easier to just send a transaction and get it included in one block. And I don't have to like worry about adjusting gas fees anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but like in addition to all of those things, EAP1559 also proves to the world that the Ethereum ecosystem really is capable of uh, making big changes. And like, it's not just vaporware. Um, and I think people are increasingly confident now that like the merge is something that is going to happen too. Right? And it's a big shift. Like, um, it it feels so long ago, but like even as little as late as um, 
like at the beginning of 2020, it was still a common Bitcoin maximalist position that like the merge will never happen, right? Um, and you know, since then they've obviously moved on to um, other arguments and like they've even you know just embraced the whole like you know oh proof of stake will happen but it's bad mm-hmm. um, thing. So <laughs> you know when uh, when you make enough progress to force other people to to, to shift their narratives, that's uh, definitely something um, a sign that you're doing things right. So that was an answer from, I would say, like the inside out of Ethereum, focusing on where Ethereum is as a protocol. Mm. But what about viewing Ethereum from the outside in from the, you know, we have uh, government regulators looking at what's going on in DeFi and Mm -hmm. we have, you know, cute penguins working their way into like the Zoomers, like computers that they they Mm. come home after school. What about from the the social level? Where is Mm. Ethereum in its acceptance as a social technology? I think it's finally breaking out, and I think it's amazing that it's finally breaking out. The NFT space did a lot, I think, because the NFT space showed a, a constituency other than finance people that Ethereum has something real, really cool and interesting inside of it, right? Like you have all of these artists that are selling these NFTs. Um, gamers um, are obviously increasingly interested. Um, you have... Uh, just, you know, this like ecosystem of people just doing all sorts of really cool and creative and fun stuff. Um, like ENS is kind of slowly continu- continuing to, you know, ma- uh, make its way forward. Maybe having a bit of a lull just because there's high transaction fees and it's expensive to interact with anything. But, you know, once uh, rollups come online, which is very soon, I mean, Arbitrum, I, my understanding is that it still has training wheels, but it did launch a kind of available to everyone uh, version um, a couple of days ago. So, like, you know, big congrats to Arbitrum. Amazing progress there. Um the and optimism obviously you know they're continuing to run their uh, i think they have about a um, hundred thousand dollars a day of uh, transact uh, transaction fees now um so they um, made that blog post right where they promised to put a yeah, large portion of uh, sequence revenues into retroactive public goods funding um and like we're talking a hundred thousand dollars a day of retroactive funding public goods funding like that's bigger than the gitcoin matching pool budget so uh, roll-ups are increasingly being used um i think it is definitely like, one of the places where I was over optimistic before is that I thought that, you know, once you had things like Loopring and ZK Sync, people would just start um, adopting them immediately for payments. But I think what ended up happening is that we showed that, like, you actually do need the richer, kind of fully EVM capable ecosystem with all sorts of applications on a roll up for people to, like, really want to jump onto one en masse. But that's actually happening now. And I think the jumping is happening. And once that happens, then the fees are going to go down and all of this kind of latent mm-hmm. interest um, in just doing all sorts of of like interesting and cool things on Ethereum, like that's going to really blow up even more. Um, so mm-hmm. looking forward to that. Yeah, we, we talk about packing our bags and going off to the layer two suburbs because it's cheaper to live there. Mm-hmm. What technologies do you think we will finally be able to unlock now that layer two is here that we wouldn't have been able to use because of the prohibitive computation and fees on the main chain? So ENS becoming a much bigger deal, something I already mentioned, um, like even mm-hmm. like something like status, for example, like I think uh, ENS, uh, high ENS fees are probably one of the biggest barriers to adoption at this point. Um, and at the same time, like the other barriers to adoption, like how syncing between devices doesn't work well and like you can't really see people's names clearly yet and all these other things, like those are things that the team is also actively working on fixing and they have a whole bunch of other awesome features that are in the works. Um, so 
I expect Status Hold to become considerably more amazing once it both integrates Layer 2s and uh, does all these other things. Um, all of this gaming stuff, obviously. Like, mm. ho hopefully ZK Game is not going to be on a testnet forever. Um, mm. There's... Um, like basically all of these non-financial applications, um, attestations, um, like just like claims being made about different about different accounts, um, just much wider adoption of like Pope and proof of humanity and all these other protocols. Like just yeah, I mean the entire non-financial um, Ethereum ecosystem being able to just be much bigger and uh, be yeah, accessible to people who are not like basically already rich from having held um, ETH for the last few years. Vitalik, um, ETH just just passed its sixth birthday, so that means we're in the sixth year, and it's mm. been a pleasure to uh, to have you on the podcast, uh, sir. We, we've gone over so much, but I want to ask you kind of this this final question. Um, each year, maybe has had kind of a, a like a feeling, a, a trend, something about it that's new. You know, you know, twenty fifteen there was launch, then there was mm. you know DAO, maybe twenty sixteen ICO, twenty seventeen. What do you think is the you know the the word or phrase or theme for the year 2021 for ethereum hmm i would say scaling um both in the sense of technical scaling of rollups finally coming online also and in the sense of social scaling of uh communities other than finance caring about ethereum for the whole for uh, for the first time um and uh, just uh ethereum becoming much more culturally mainstream um and of course, um, you know, in the sense of uh, kind of the Ethereum uh, layer one scaling things, not quite happening yet, but definitely um, like being on a path, getting onto the path where people are increasingly convinced that they're going to happen. So scaling in many ways. Awesome. Vitalik, thank you so much once again for joining us on Bankless. Thank you for having me. Guys, action items today. We have uh, a couple of links for you, uh, two to Vitalik's blog. The first is you got to check out the article we talked about in the beginning, moving beyond coin voting governance to get some of the details in written form from Vitalik. Also, um, read the limits to blockchain scalability. We touched on that in the second part. Of course, as always, risks and disclaimers. ETH is risky, crypto is risky, DeFi is risky. You could definitely lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier, and we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot.